Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, thanks for coming. You are here for uh, another CSA Online session. Uh, this one uh, should prove to be, uh, I think, a real treat and, and informative. Uh, Robots, Royals, Bites and Risk, a modern ICS security or ICS success story with Brent Houston. A lot of you will uh, recognize Brent, one of our fellows and a longtime friend and colleague of my of mine and longtime supporter of uh, of CSA going back to its, its early days, uh, even uh, six years ago. If you don't know Brent, Brent has done uh, some sessions with us before and um, he, he's been in this business a long, long time. He's been in cybersecurity for decades, three decades plus, um, and been a business owner uh, in this space for three decades and has had exposure to a huge number and array of projects uh, over time and can talk in great detail about so many of them. And I think he's uh, one of the best uh, folks I know that has a deep technical background, but that can also explain things in ways that, uh, that all of us can access if we don't have the same technological background. So I hope you've got Q&A ready. He can really uh, give you some great value during Q&A. Brent, I can't wait to hear what you have to share about your real world project. <clears throat> well, thank you for having me. Uh, I am Brent Houston. I've known Derek and everybody else involved for decades. I am probably the luckiest man on the planet. For about 30 years now, I've gotten to travel around the world, work on technology, play with a variety of technology and really just get to uh, do the things that make me happy pretty much every day. So in this case, uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about warehousing and, and sort of some of the automation involved in that. Now, how I got involved in automated warehousing and, and some of that is, is sort of interesting. So 25, 30 years ago, uh, my capstone project, I went to DeVry, and my capstone project was to work on, at that time, uh, an automated packaging system, which was used for one of the high-end brands that everybody runs into at the mall. And uh, so we, we started building and optimizing these uh, electronic systems at that time, which were mostly just uh, ways to route packages on conveyor belts and, and use some optical sensors. And, uh, some actuator motors to kind of fire off and, and reroute packages. Over the years, uh, I've developed point of sale systems and inventory control systems. Uh, at one point, I owned a, a small company where we did customized, customized inventory control and point of sale for very specific products, um, things like unfinished furniture that come in a variety of different SKUs. We did a point of sale system for diamonds. Uh, which have a very unique identifier per stone. Uh, and so I had some background in this uh, sort of automated warehousing uh, pieces of it. Now, on the other side, as Derek alluded to, I've been working in cybersecurity and industrial control systems, industrial automation uh, for three decades. Uh, I've done everything from running a testing lab, which I still run today to do security testing on products and different implementations and, and uh, different networks, uh, all the way through to testing down to the chip level uh, on medical equipment, voting systems, a variety of uh, industrial control stuff for power and energy and uh, water and natural gas and so on and so forth. So uh, a pretty deep, uh, understanding of that space as well. Uh, so I have a client uh, who shall remain unnamed, but they're a global uh, manufacturing client. 
they make a variety of high-tech products. Uh, and they started to get involved in building out an automated warehousing system. Uh, and while it was still in the design and sort of uh, implementation mode, uh, they brought us in to really help with understanding it and help with helping to secure that environment. And so that's, that's sort of how we got there. So uh, when you start thinking about the way these systems work, it's, it's hard to conceptualize. Uh, and so I wanted to include this diagram and we'll dive even deeper into it here in a moment. Uh, but essentially think of these giant Rubik's cube-like framework that is built in a large open space. In many cases, they are four to five stories high. And that surface area that you see that have the uh, red squares at the top, those might be in some cases the, you know, the, the surface area of about two to three football fields. So these are really large uh, environments. And the rails essentially uh, are what the robots ride. And then down below is a conveyor system of stacked bins. And we'll get into more detail of how these things work uh, here shortly. But the idea behind automated warehousing is that you always want to have the goods that you're selling and that you're packaging and distributing at essentially at your fingertips. Um, and so since warehousing space itself is quite expensive, these solutions trade that sort of uh, convenience of having it visible, everything visible and at your fingertips uh, for density. So they put the products in these bins, the bins are then uh, stored inside of this cubed environment and the robots make sure that the product gets to where it's supposed to be while there are IT systems involved in making sure that we know how many packages uh, of product are in each bin and where those bins are located inside of the warehousing system. When you deploy these types of uh, highly dense systems, they often include picking and packing, uh, that is getting product out of the automated warehouse and then putting it in boxes and, and including that all the way through shipping and receiving. Uh, and then you, you of course have to have processes for uh, getting product either off of the line or uh, from a, a third party manufacturer and bringing that in, storing it in the warehouse sorting it, loading it, unloading it, et cetera. So there's a lot of, right. yes, we've got this sort of warehousing environment where we're putting all of these things together, but there's a lot of business processes involved, how we get product in and out, how do we track where it is, what's inside of there, so on and so forth. Now, why this is becoming so important, and we'll dig into more of the metrics here in a minute, but just understand that when we buy a product, for example, from Amazon or even from a traditional brick and mortar retailer, uh, labor costs account for about 60 to 65% of all the fulfillment cost of getting that product, warehousing it, and getting it to you. And so it's a huge part of uh, the cost of delivery of a product and obviously the part the a huge part of the, the margins involved in a product. So anything that a company can do to reduce that cost increases their margin or allows them greater pricing flexibility in the marketplace. 
automated warehousing is also, it's just incredibly uh, quickly moving right now. And it's really a prime area of set for disruption. Uh, and so what we're seeing right now, for example, is in warehouse robotics kind of startups, we've seen an increase by almost 60% in the first quarter of 2020. And at that time, even if, if you think back to, you know, this is early pandemic, we're see, we saw $380 million of venture capital and private equity investment into companies working in this space. So it's hugely popular, hugely set for disruption, and um, just really a, a hot area in terms of, of optimizing retail. So let's talk a little bit more about how this system works in particular. So the robots, that in this case, are the red uh, boxes on top. And they're essentially, uh, we'll, we'll dig more into them shortly, but they move on these rails and they can move either vertically or horizontally on the rails to move between different uh, cubicle spaces. And each one of those cubicle spaces is a, is a heightened row of cartons, these, these sort of plastic trays. And those plastic trays are on conveyors that can lift them uh, up. And the robot can grab uh, the top bin and then move it somewhere else or take it over and give it to, uh, put it down a chute to give it to uh, one of the packagers who are at the desks that you see at the bottom of the cubes. So this thing runs uh, pretty much nonstop, 24-7 if you're a 24-7 warehouse, and the robots simply move the inventory containers in and out to get to the product that they need. Now, what's interesting about this is the inventory itself becomes subject to a sort of bubble sort routine. And when we first load up the products and, and um, the products are in the bins and they're sort of assigned at the beginning, uh, what you have is oftentimes a mix of, of product utilization. But over time, a bubble sort mechanism essentially applies. And the more common products tend to rise toward the top, while the products that are sold less often sink to the bottom of the stack. And what that is is self-optimization of the process so that the robots have to move fewer containers uh, between rows. We call this restacking. Uh, they, they have to restack less to get to the products that are commonly sold and sold more often uh, and thus delivered more often to the humans packaging it. Uh, and while that does occur, it really does, the frequency of it reduces greatly over time as products sort of hit that natural wave of progression. Uh, each bin is uh, monitored. It has an RF uh, ID. It's also got some optical uh, identifiers on it. And there are optical uh, scanners throughout the cube that keep track of exactly where each bin is inside of the different cubed environment. So the system knows how to dispatch the robot uh, to restack or to get to any particular product. The robots move at fairly high speeds. Uh, it is user programmable, but they do move fast enough to be dangerous to a human. So it is one of those things that you have to be careful of. Uh, there are mechanisms. There's actually a little cart uh, that you can strap yourself into. Uh, if you're a human and you have to service the rails, you can get on this little cart and you can wheel yourself out. Uh, some are electric as well, so you can use it like a wheelchair and you can move around the top of the grid yourself. 
uh, to service it or inspect it and so on and so forth. Uh, but while you're doing that, you have to either shut down the system or you can turn off part of the grid to the robots so that they can't uh, come near you. And hopefully most of the time that works out pretty well. Uh, it is obviously safer to completely disable the robots because they are moving quite rapidly. So this is a little bit of a closer view. So you can see a little bit of the depth of what we're talking about. The robots are much less uh, like C3PO and much more like R2D2. Uh, they're essentially a, a, a fairly dumb uh, implementation. Uh, they don't have a lot of onboard telemetry. They communicate pretty heavily with a controlling system and that controller system maps the route, tells it what to do, tells the robot where to turn and so on and so forth. Uh, and so what you have here as well is a gripper mechanism that can grab onto the containers. So uh, the container is lifted from the bottom. In this case, you can see there's sort of the arm part of the robot is over a cell. Uh, and so the, the conveyors inside the cells uh, stack would then lift the container that is needed up to the robot and the robot grabs onto it and then takes the container to where it needs to go, either for restacking uh, in, in a different uh, area or for delivery to a human for packaging and processing. Um, the robots are a little bit heavy. Keep in mind, like I said, these are moving at fairly high speeds. Uh, they can be dangerous uh, to a person. Uh, each one weighs a several hundred pounds and um, has a bunch of drive motors and a little bit of just industrial control sort of mechanisms uh, to fire the motors and to manage uh, location, but they are in fact pretty dumb. They, they are not aware of where the other robots are. Um, they are not aware of what's near them. And they basically only know the, the path uh, that they need to take to get wherever it is that they're going as a destination. So why are these things uh, sort of progressing? We talked a little bit about the economics of this. And, and so as we talk to multiple companies who are putting these systems in, it's important to understand what the business is that's driving uh, this kind of adoption and, and this sort of uh, use of these systems. So I wanted to give you just a few bullet points of what leadership, what the, the executives in a company see when they see this automated warehousing. Again, we talked about this before, but just embracing warehouse robotics can drive about a 70% reduction in the overall operating cost of a warehouse and in product delivery. That's simply a very, very attractive uh, model. While the upfront investment for warehouse robotics is fairly high, there is a pretty significant return on investment and the payback, uh, in fact, can be done in, in you know, oftentimes two to three year timeframes. So uh, there's just a huge ROI there potentially for the folks that lead these companies. Um, automated storage and retrieval systems, which is what is a fancy name for automate, uh, warehouse automation, um, they also increase the order accuracy. So the actual, what goes in the box, making sure that what goes in the box matches the uh, products expected. And uh, studies have shown that it can get in the 99.99 percentile uh, accuracy when these systems are up and running and they're optimized and operational. Um, we also found that it reduced time 
to package uh, a given order substantially. So uh, just an individual pick and pack order went much quicker than using human warehouses and folks walking between locations. How many folks out there are doing this? Well, uh, over the next two years, 66% uh, of all the warehouses in Europe and in the US said they plan to increase their investment in technology. Most of that is a focus on this level of automation. Some of it is sort of scheduling tools that uh, also can be used to optimize human uh, warehouses but the majority of that's expected to be warehouse automation. Forbes magazine did a pretty uh, extensive poll uh, and in it over 60% of the respondents said they expect to invest in this sort of conveyor and sortation systems over the next three years. And 96%, I wanna say that again, 96% of the folks that Forbes surveyed said that they thought warehouse automation would actually become more valuable in comparison to you know, the manual warehousing uh, over the next three years. So this is a leadership curve that they see accelerating. Now, unfortunately, uh, when you put this in front of security teams, here's what security teams see. They see a very complex system, which uh, this is. It's, there's a high number of components. Uh, there's a high number of technology uh, pieces and parts in this. And it is both IT infrastructure and systems. We have to have some servers, we have to have databases, we have to have networks and so on and so forth. There's also a bunch of OT stuff in here. Um, we have PLCs, we have actuator motors, we have sensors and telemetry, and all of the standard OT type of environment components that we're used to. And we have to take the IT stuff and the OT stuff, interconnect them, and hook them up to critical organizational data, things like uh, the accounting system and inventory control and shipping and the ledger and so on and so forth. So all of those sort of fiefdoms and silos that have traditionally existed and that have caused a lot of the head-to-head -head friction between IT and OT teams. All of that becomes required to implement a system like this. Uh, even worse, not only are we connecting to these critical organizational data sources, but the very act of delivering products to customers is in and, its, in and of itself a mission critical operation. If we have downtime in the warehouse and we can't ship product, we can't make money, and that really impacts the business very quickly. So it, it does take all of this infrastructure, all of this technology and all of this tension that we've historically had, and it basically says, hey, get over it. We're gonna have to do this to build this mission critical uh, part of the business. Um, in addition to that, if you look across uh, deployment, for example, like this automated warehousing uh, tool, there are tons of different communication mechanisms, a lot of different protocols, all kinds of, wired uh, protocols and wireless protocols. Um, in this particular instance, there's all kinds of RF from Wi-Fi to uh, Zigbee. Uh, there is some proprietary RF protocols. Um, in the wired space, we have IP, we have Modbus, we have all of the sort of traditional operational protocols and systems that you would expect uh, and are used to in a, in a, in a industrial control 
uh, context and in an IT context. And that means we also, of course, have all of the threats of both sides. We have the IT threats uh, and the IT exposures, and we have the OT threats. Uh, and so security teams, when you show them these types of operations, they see a lot of risk. And um, how to deal with that is, is really where we came in and, and where the success story starts. So if you think about, we get the call one day that, hey, our client is building this uh, automation uh, in the warehouse. They want us to come and take a look at it. Uh, it's literally in the prototyping phase. They're building these systems out with um, welders and there's all this stuff going on in the warehouse space. And we don't have necessarily physical access to the environment because there's a lot of stuff going on out there with uh, gas welders and stuff like that. They didn't want us just wandering around. And so we had to have a place to start and really started to get our heads around the environment and how we were going to apply security controls uh, to it. So in this case, we decided we would start by applying the NIST cybersecurity framework at a very high level. Um, so we went through and we started with, of course, identify. And the very first thing that we started looking at was the, the uh, bill of materials. So we got with the vendor who was providing the product and building the uh, warehouse automation. We met with each one of the vendors involved, asked for their bill of materials, and uh, started working through line by line, identifying what components we were expecting, how those components uh, were going to be deployed and where physically on the floor, we thankfully, our vendors, in order to build this thing, had put together a pretty substantial footprint map so that the welding could take place in the right places and we could get, get you know tables and power and all of that stuff in the right places. So we used a lot of that intelligence that they had already built for the, for the actual construction uh, to build out what some of the components might look like and, and where they were. We then issued a document call to the vendor. We asked for all relevant materials, any documentation. Uh, we didn't care how much they gave us, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why that was. And in fact, this worked. We, we got back a whole bunch of documentation, well over 3,500 pages of documentation uh, of all the different components and systems uh, that were going to be involved. And then we started to put together a strategy for how we were going to do inventory of these systems and their components and how we were going to do protocol mapping so on and so forth. At the same time, we also started to, uh, in the protect phase of the, CIS, uh, of the NIST cybersecurity framework, um, and we started to identify what the capabilities and shortcomings were uh, in the planned deployment for what controls we had, what controls we didn't. We performed a gap analysis using some industry standard best practices, uh, really kind of translated even some of those from the Center for Internet Security, uh, Common Security Frameworks or Controls Framework uh, into industrial control and back and forth and really kind of came up with a gap analysis and a mitigation plan of how we were going to protect some of these systems. At the same time, we inventoried all of our detection capabilities. We, uh, by reviewing the documentation in detail, and we'll talk more about how we did that here shortly, we were able to identify all of the logging sources that would be available. Uh, and build a logging infrastructure that was going to be specific to uh, the warehouse instance and uh, begin to figure out how we were going to monitor and manage all those different data sources, put together a monitoring plan, and in fact, uh, actually spun up an OT SOC 
uh, in the environment specifically to manage uh, OT technologies that works hand in hand in direct partnership uh, in a brother relationship with the existing IT SOC. And this gave us the ability to staff that with a team of folks who were used to OT protocols uh, and could work handily in that environment. Uh, at the same time, we worked with the folks that were doing disaster recovery business continuity, and we put together uh, draft incident response plans. We did a couple of tabletop events to ensure that our existing IT incident response team uh, could work with these OT technologies and the members of the OT SOC and uh, put together integration of these OT technologies into our existing DR and BC planning. Uh, that meant working with the uh, business intelligence folks and, and doing a BIA, uh, integrating some of that in, and then really sitting down and drafting policy process, uh, regulatory framework, uh, hooks, and, and so on and so forth. All of the activity that you just heard within about 45 days uh, really gave us a pretty strong knowledge of the environment. Uh, we had a really good understanding uh, in IT and in the OT SOC with what was going to be there, what was expected, and what the roadmap was going to be, what we needed to learn uh, and put together. So about 45 days. Now, one of the cheat codes that we used, the shortcut, was I said we got back these 3,500 pages of documentation. We didn't just send that all home with everybody and tell them to read it over the weekend. It was way too much for that. Uh, so instead, we asked for all of that to come to us electronically. Most of it came as PDF files, and um, we did get a few other formats. But essentially, we used some machine learning tools to strip the text out of all that documentation. Uh, we dropped it into a freeform database and uh, let the database create relationships between the concepts uh, in all the documentation. And we used natural language processing, NLP, uh, which is a machine learning technique, uh, to really analyze that document uh, set and create a knowledge base. The first thing we used that knowledge base for was to create a concordance. A concordance is a fancy word for a glossary. So we had sort of a coordination of all the terms. Um, and we knew, for example, that if um, we were gonna talk about protocol, uh, they might be using this set of words. And so we looked at everything that related to protocols and the same with interfaces and firmware and so on and so forth. So it gave us sort of a clustered map of words that we could use to do keyword searches uh, in the knowledge base and return relevant sections of the documentation. So once we had that and understanding of the terms, then we use this mechanism to parse the documentation uh, and generate inventory reports and configuration maps uh, and get an initial attack surface map. So we were able to ask it, for example, um, what software pieces, what firmware pieces, what systems did different things, pull back those configurations, and then really sit down and have the folks in the OT SOC build out an attack surface map for the entire system even before we'd seen it. Uh, and then we could use that in our uh, security processes. So the NLP uh, processing really gave us a heads up. We were easily several weeks ahead of being able to actually get hands-on systems while they were being built. And we, we already had started to work with the configuration relationships. 
We knew what components, for example, configured and passed firmware to other components. Uh, we had a pretty good, I'd say 95% uh, accurate software, firmware, and application inventory. Um, we also knew what the update requirements were for each piece of software, firmware, uh, and application code that was out there. Uh, we took those attack surface maps that we generated using NLP. We fed those into threat modeling, uh, started to apply stride to them and really start to build out a threat catalog, even at the same time that literally the welders were welding pieces together, network cables were getting strung and systems were getting erected. We already had a pretty good idea of what attacks we were facing, what the threats looked like uh, and what the attack surfaces looked like. Now, of course, we didn't take that as the gospel. Uh, we enriched that data later. Once those systems were done, we had physical access and we did configuration reviews. Uh, but really, we think this uh, NLP pre-processing gave us more than 80% enumeration, and it allowed us to work in parallel while other parts of the process were undertaking, ultimately shaving time off the delivery for the product. Once the environment was built, uh, we decided we were going to passively map the environment. So in this case, we used packet captures. Uh, we deployed packet captures at the different collision domains while the products were doing test phase operation and burn-in. Um, so test phase here, we're watching the products get stood up. Uh, come online, we're watching those initial configurations and firmware loads. But then during burn-in, we're really watching fake products being moved in and out. Uh, and we got a feel for what real-life operation was going to be like. And we did all of that by doing packet capture and analysis uh, of that data. Now, that helped us finish out our inventory of devices, applications, protocols, and data flows, and really let us build a network map and enrich that threat modeling data that we had gotten from the NLP. Interestingly enough, um, we were pretty accurate. Like I said, we were well into the 90th uh, plus percentile of uh, accuracy, but it really let us understand the data relationships between different segments. Um, we looked at uh, breaking up the conversations at different class B uh, levels of the environment, different class C network networks of the environment. And at the same time, we took all of the textual configuration files from the routers, switches, PLCs, uh, everything that had a textual configuration, and we fed that back into the NLP engine, and then did things like created hardening advice, um, looked at different control models, could we implement different controls effectively, so on and so forth. So using that machine learning technique to analyze the network data uh, really gave us even greater views, like I said, we, we now, today, we feel we have about 99.9% .9 of uh, knowledge of the environment. Uh, we've got a pretty good understanding of uh, the data flows between them. We understand how the data moves. We were able to implement baseline micro-segmentation strategies. Uh, by using some of those data flow uh, management, we decided we would apply some router and switch ACLs uh, to lock down uh, different data flows. So now uh, different parts of the environment are segmented away. They can, if, if an attacker managed to get a hold of, say, a conveyor device, um, they can't necessarily communicate with some other part of the system. And essentially, those controls enforce that micro segmentation. We also used those textual device configurations, uh, came up with hardening steps, 
and then really went back and applied those. So we looked to make sure that uh, the routers and switches and, uh, and firewalls and other devices and the PLC configurations were the same across the uh, environment. And wherever they weren't, we created a process for documenting those exceptions and, and really handling it. As I mentioned before, we did threat modeling uh, and built out all of the different threats and then tied that back into a central threat and fail state catalog, which essentially became a risk registry. And that risk registry, we used data tagging and introduced the same record tagging schema between the risk registry, all the maintenance logging, all of the outage tracking system and any uh, service record keeping. Using that same tagging system allows us to pull in those data sources and run reports. And we can start to see trends and get a feel for failure cycles of different parts of the system. So for example, we can start to, to look at how often conveyor belts uh, you know, fail and need to be replaced so that we can increase our preventative maintenance. We can see that across the risk registry, we can see it tied to outages, and we can see that in the vendor service records uh, that they're doing. So we can tie all of that together simply by using a, a very simple record tagging schema. Now, this hard work all did pay off. We had successful deployment and implementation. We came on, came in, about two, uh, about two and a half weeks under the allotted time frame. We also uh, came in under budget on the time frame, uh, or under budget on the project, which is uh, phenomenal given the work that we did. As I said, we formed a new OT security group uh, on a global scale, and now we're moving those same techniques from automated warehousing into our production environments, and we're starting to work more heavily uh, across the global organization to implement and leverage what we learned. We've also seen a really significant uh, breakdown of some of the tension between IT and OT and much more understanding and the ability to work together. Uh, those SOCs are working together wonderfully. We've had a number of issues now where we have worked together to solve uh, problems and do fail state modeling and uh, different forms of analysis. We also have seen investment by upper management into the OT security. Once they saw a successful deployment in warehousing, they've been willing to uh, bring that OT security mechanism and some of the same techniques to other parts of the business. And they are starting to provide funding for that. We also just this month, starting in October, we began to cross train our IT and OT folks, not just in the SOX, uh, but also the, an the analysts, the engineers, the architects, uh, and get them exposure across the business and the different lines and build personal relationships there. And we're seeing payoff in that. We also talked about the shared data tagging. That has really just had a huge payoff for something so small. Having access to that data is really increasing and optimizing our failure and service routines. Um, our threat catalog that we used from doing threat modeling, we've had really great pollination between the different working groups. And now we're seeing the IT folks spend a lot more time threat modeling and a lot less time doing sort of vulnerability scanning and penetration testing. Uh, instead, they're starting to think more in terms of threats, controls, and uh, sort of raising their vision. And that's getting them out of sort of vulnerability whack-a-mole 
we've also fed all the configuration and data flow maps that we made into our root cause analysis, and that is speeding up our troubleshooting. Um, we're starting to have much faster ability to do uh, root cause analysis using cause and effect mapping, Bayesian logic, uh, five whys. And we've started to really get the folks in the socks, both socks, uh, educated on these different mental models of how to do root cause analysis. And um, now we're able to solve uh, problems and come to probable determinations at a much, much faster rate. I want to talk about some challenges because everything really wasn't uh, peaches and cream. There were some challenges and some of them were fairly significant. The first one is that these, suns, these systems all use a ton of RF communication. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, all kinds of uh, RF going on out there from Wi-Fi to Zigbee to uh, custom RF, uh, proprietary RF. And um, in this warehouse environment, we had a ton of RF interference and noise. Spot welders, for example, um, produce a high amount of RF as they're uh, doing their work. Um, so the, the more that we tested while welding was still going on, the more we noticed uh, failures and dropouts. So we started to do it, use root cause analysis to isolate some of these issues. We had to relocate the, there are employees who do the picking and packing uh, we had to relocate their lounge area uh, behind a shielded system because as they were popping popcorn or warming up their lunches, uh, the microwaves were causing RF issues, which were killing some of the communications and causing uh, anomalies and failures. So we did a lot of RF mapping, a lot of noise surveys, but really returning to those root cause analysis techniques and and watching the team solve these problems uh, pretty quickly. We also, because it was a weird summer uh, in the place where this, uh, this warehouse is located, um, we didn't have heating and cooling uh, sufficient to manage uh, some of the increased heating needs uh, or cooling needs in the warehouse. So the systems, uh, the robots and the various uh, industrial control systems were causing a lot of additional heating. We had to install some additional air handlers COVID also came along. We had to increase the ventilation in the, in the warehouses to handle some of that. We definitely had to increase our humidity control uh, because even something as simple as the humidity was causing uh, some rapid failure of some of the rubber and foam parts, um, some of the bumpers and some of the belts uh, on, on the different conveyor systems. So really getting a feel around that and continuing to do root cause analysis and tracking these service calls and failure conditions uh, using tagging uh, gave us some really good insights and, and allowed us to tune and tweak the environment to succeed. Now, I promised you we would talk a little bit about robots um, and uh, some of the failures with the robots. We did have some uh, that were significant. When we first got the system and started talking about it, um, almost everyone on the team expected that the robots would be smarter than they are. They're really quite dumb. Um, we expected them to have, for example, proximity sensors or you know, some type of uh, magnetic sensor so they would know if they were near another robot and they wouldn't just run into another robot. Uh, but these systems are, are not in place. They are really just a box of, of motors and actuators and a little bit of RF that uh, tells them back to a controlling device uh, appliance 
that tells them what their route's going to be. And so everything really happens on that controlling device, the appliance. And these folks just follow their sort of uh, routine. And all the decisions happen back there in that controller device. And then it's communicated, of course, via RF. So as you might expect, we've already talked about having RF problems in the warehouse in the beginning. So it was nothing to see uh, sort of the robots miss a turn and just sort of continue and bump into the edge and stop. And that was because they lost the ability to RF communicate with the controller and they would just stay on their path uh, currently. So this started to happen even after we fixed the uh, RF issues in the environment. It didn't take too long before, of course, two robots ran into each other at high speed. They slammed together. And um, remember what I said, they don't know that each one is there. They don't know if the track is clear ahead of that. So the first collision we had where we had two robots smash into each other, one of the side panels, you can see it here with the number 203 on it, um, went flying and it landed on the track uh, right in front of another robot, which then promptly ran it over, uh, got derailed, tipped over and just sort of laid there on its side uh, while the other two were essentially completely, totally demolished uh, by running into each other. So we had these like kind of collisions. We've had three or four collisions. Uh, and you will know because you hear these, these uh, big boom sounds when it happens. Uh, the robots are essentially big. That, that part that has 203 on it is essentially a big empty box in an aluminum case. And so when they smash together, it sounds like a bass drum. Uh, hit and you you hear it that way. The manager of that environment says it sounds that sound reminds him a lot of losing large amounts of money. Every one of these robots is in the six figures, uh, five to six figures, uh, to buy them, and so downtime is measured in five figures as well. Uh, so whenever you have these collisions, you have to stop and clean up the environment. You have to go out on that little truck, like I said, and wheel yourself out on the rack and get everything back together. So you have downtime and, and it really quickly escalates. We also learned that track integrity is critical. Um, these robots, as you can see here in the corner, they have wheels uh, that move them bidirectionally. So when they're moving uh, laterally, one set of wheels is sort of dropped down and that's what it's running on. The other wheels are sort of lifted up. And then when it's time for them to move in the opposite direction, the uh, one set of wheels lifts, the other set comes down and now it can move in on the track in that direction. However, uh, if there is a bend in the track or if a part of the track gets, uh, for example, dented, uh, you can have robots derail. And we've had that a couple of times as well where uh, something has gotten caught, like uh, maybe the operators overfilled one of the boxes, uh, the, the trays that are being lifted. And so as the tray came up, uh, a little bit of the box of the product that was inside the tray, caught the rail, bent it just slightly, um, and that was enough to derail the robots. And so you have to go out there and service the rails. Um, so we know that that is also correct. So we also learned that operator training, uh, making sure they don't overweight or overpack the trays is critical, um, as any of these kinds of careless operations can run into issues. So training is still quite critical. So uh, as we approach the 60 minute mark, we're gonna open this up for questions here in just a minute. But I just wanna end this with 
using the frameworks and a lot of these tools that we talk about quite often really does work. Um, this is a case where we came in and we used traditional information security knowledge uh, to build out and successful, uh, successfully deploy this environment. Um, we used machine learning tools like NLP to really increase uh, our capabilities and contribute to success. Uh, we got IT and OT to work together, which is often very difficult. And we got a lot of mileage out of basic blocking and tackling. Um, throughout the project, we really focused on using the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, that 20% of the effort would get us 80% of the way to the goal. Uh, and over and over and over again, that returned uh, investment. Um, lastly, we found that working with the two socks, really teaching them mental models, uh, especially around troubleshooting and root cause analysis and some of these softer skills really amped up their ability to do their jobs and be effective. As we saw haul a really hard ROI on uh, that type of, of uh, education and training. So uh, we're gonna open it up to Q&A here in just a moment, I believe. But uh, I wanna say thank you for listening. Thank you for having us. If you have more questions, uh, you can read more about the products that, uh, that we installed here at autostoresystem.com. They're the vendor for the automated warehousing. The Wikipedia page for automated storage and retrieval systems, which is, again, that fancy name for warehousing, really, really phenomenal. My email and social contacts are on the screen, as well as my company and um, our blog, stateofsecurity.com. Uh, you can always read more about us or engage with us there. So. That said, uh, I will turn it back over to Derek, I believe. All right, thank you, Brent. Let me get uh, things fired up here. Um, that was uh, uh, pretty pretty awesome, um, and there was a lot of there are a lot of questions and um, a fair amount of feedback and uh, positive feedback and questions and et cetera. So we'll uh, knock out a few things and then um, uh, get to. Q&A, so thank you for that. I think that was uh, great. But uh, Brent, we've got some work to do here. <laughs> All right, so, so you addressed some of these things. You know, I, I love one one thing about your approach, Brent. When you, you talked about some risks that weren't cybersecurity risks. And so you had your risk hat on. It's like measuring risk, and we've got data, and we've got reporting, and we've got things we can assess. And you might see risks that aren't, you know, that aren't cybersecurity related. I love that, that holistic approach. And I think uh, no matter what our duties or responsibilities are, that concept of, we're all in this together. We want to mitigate risk to our enterprises. And, and so I think that sort of your, your basic philosophy there was 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 great. I, that's one of the things I took away from it. Well, I think you have to because at the end of the day, this is a business function. <clears throat> and if you can't talk to the, you know, traditional folks who are who are leading these business functions uh, in their own language and they un they do understand risk, they don't understand cyber, perhaps. Uh, but they understand risk and they know what an outage means in a warehouse. So I think really being able to to look holistically at risk and 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 talk with them allows them to engage more and that makes them more of a stakeholder. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, proliferation of these sorts of systems. And I, there's a great question in the question bank um, that I think sort of sets this up. And it's a question around with all this stuff stuck on shipping containers these days. You know, why aren't we getting it off? It sounds great. How much of this level of automation, what you shared and gave us a window into today, and I've never seen it in that detail myself, how much of that is out there? And, and, and that really isn't yet the remedy, right, to get all this stuff that's bottlenecked 
Well, it is uh, out there to some extent. I would say we see it in about uh, 15 to 20 percent of our existing uh, sort of warehousing clients um, or manufacturing clients. But what you're seeing is this is really exploding. As, as you saw, you're going to see, you know, most major companies are, are putting it in. Also, they're. In terms of proliferation, for example, this client's going to deploy 25 more of these in 14 different countries in the next three years. So once they get a sense of it and they feel that they can they can manage this type of deployment, uh, it just makes sense to put it everywhere uh, in the business. And as you look at ports, uh, you know there you what you saw today was consumer products, right? So what's in the bins? are you know smaller products uh could be the size of you know this it could be the size of a can maybe it's the size of a router but but um bigger implementations of this are starting to show up at the ports to move whole containers so instead of moving just you know a box of stuff up and down they're actually moving and relocating shipping containers so over the next 10 years, we'll iron some of these uh, issues out. Quite frankly, up until COVID, uh, a lot of our shipping and supply chain processes were working, albeit they were highly utilized, but the impetus wasn't there to optimize and drive you know, value. Um, but that's what you're seeing now. The business demands are starting to uh, require that we embrace these levels of automation. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes makes sense. So let's get into it. So uh, one question early on, and you, you you touched on some of these, but I'm I'm you know bringing them up just to see what you want to say sort of specifically about it again. And so this one is about set points on the robots. You talked a lot about how they operate. Can someone change those, and would that result in physical damage? They don't. Again, they are not really smart appliances. They um they don't don't do any decision making. They essentially just get calibrated to, to run in terms of speed. And then the controller tells them, you know, go forward five marks, turn, you know, turn left, go forward six marks, turn left, so on and so forth. So they don't have uh, a lot of telemetry for an attacker to mess around with. However, keep in mind, these things are up above in the warehouse, right? And they're, you know, we've certainly put fencing and stuff in to keep them up there. but if you could tamper with them, they are moving at high rates of speed. Uh, there is the possibility that you could have uh, impacts. And and as I said, when we had two robots slammed together, a panel went flying. Yeah. Um, if if there had been a human out on the grid at that time, you know, there could have been an injury. So it's, where's the it's logic? How fast I can go? If I'm one of those units, where's that logic? Is there a speed limit? All at the controller. So and it it um. The controller essentially does optimization of all of the flow. Now you can obviously because these are motors, right? You can set throttle limits. They can't exceed this, exceed that. Part of the optimization of the system is letting the controller decide how fast each robot should move, depending on what it's got to do and what yeah. the priority and order of uh, the things that go in the in the particular requisition that you're trying to fill is. So, for example, the, the, this is where root cause analysis becomes so incredibly important. So in those robot collisions, we had to sit down and start to map out. We used cause and effect mapping 
uh, is the actual technique that we use. And uh, so we say, okay, what could cause this uh, collision? Well, something like, for example, a nick on the controller that fades in and out, an RF, a loss of RF, a software bug. Uh, we started to assign probabilities of these kinds of failure conditions uh, and, and investigate them. And that gave us really tuned ideas of how uh, to mitigate some of it and do testing. In this case, it turned out to be a software bug on the controller that was unknown that, that actually allowed those two devices uh, to smash together. We also you know, have really good models of what it might look like if the NIC fails uh, and starts to intermittently fail. And so for, as we did this root cause analysis, we went ahead and categorized what the symptoms would be of the other uh, fail states, developed criteria for that, and then implemented monitoring, right? So in a NIC failure position, we know that there'll be increased ARP traffic on the switch. So we set ARP thresholds uh, on those devices. And if we see large amounts of ARP traffic, we know that potentially we've got a failing NIC in the controller uh, and we're not, you know, we may see robot misbehavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not from being called dumb, just it's in their, it's in their innate uh, nature to, to misbehave maybe. So uh, you, 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 I don't think we go into this great deal. I think it's just a confirmation statement because you definitely talked about it, but there were multiple questions around zero trust, segmentation, micro segmentation, and it's yes to all of that, right? Um, with the exception of zero trust, uh, it, it is micro-segmented. We have a very specific trust model that we use. We essentially mapped everything using a AAA format. Um, so how are different components authenticated? What levels of authorization do they have? Uh, and then how do we audit those things, monitor them and do detection? Um, so we deployed that mental model and used it against the systems, the applications, the data, and the users in the environment. Um, and so while we don't have true zero trust, we do have highly mitigated and moderated trust modeling uh, going on. And we have implemented those controls anticipating the most significant levels of failure that we could find in our root cause analysis and, and mental model work. Okay. Um, now here's a question that you know is is used less and less, but this person is is asking, you know, to what degree is there air gapping? Don't they need to be able to make, uh, you know, are you able to talk about how threat hunting or other countermeasures are on this network, given the criticality exposure of the project? It would seem that set and forget wouldn't work very well. So I think implying that there's got to be sort of access from outside to this thing. There definitely does. Uh, you know, these require remote management, maintenance. They require firmware updates. They require telemetry. And in fact, they're passing data to and from some of our most critical business systems. So, uh, yeah, they, it is not air gapped. In fact, what we've done is we've deployed perimeter security. It is very tightly controlled. We used micro segmentation for that as well. So uh, we have very specific types of connectivity that are allowed. Wherever possible, we created mechanisms where we're pulling data instead of getting data pushed to us. And uh, we essentially just tightened that up both at the larger perimeter of the uh, warehousing environment, but also inside the warehousing environment as we broke it down into micro-segmentated uh, enclaves, if you will, uh, inside the environment itself. Yeah. 
uh, it, it's fascinating. There's, I'm, I'm looking through so many different comments. Today's interesting. There's a lot of questions, but there's also lots of commentary. People are really stimulated by your thought process, re remembering things from their past. Um, Isaac Asimov has been invoked a number of times. You know, AI questions. I mean, this is incredible. And we'll share all this with Brent afterwards, all the questions. Um, and um, as we've been starting to do, we'll invite, you know, sort of to see what we can do with some of these questions that are, you know, in overflow here, as we'll probably run out of time. And Derek, anything we don't get to today, um, you know, this uh, will include all of my contact information and email and on the socials. Feel free to jump on Twitter, or ask me on Twitter, or send me an email, ask me. More than happy to uh, continue the discussion even outside of the CSA event. Yep. Awesome. And that is uh, that is definitely part of your MO. Thank you for being well, one of the people willing to willing to advise and mentor out there. Um, and it is what CSA is about. We built the fellowship program specifically for that kind of exchange. Yeah. And um, I would do no less as a fellow. Yeah, that, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, music to my ears. Any project experience with autonomous ship cybersecurity? I have some experience with uh, sh with marine maritime cybersecurity, semi-autonomous. Uh, I've worked on some projects. I've worked on some commission, uh, some commercial maritime security stuff as well, uh, but not anything in in autonomous space. In that, um, I've done some autonomous land vehicle work and a little bit of of aircraft work, but not uh, not specifically autonomous maritime uh, area. Um, that said, essentially, the work that I have done in the maritime space, these are essentially floating industrial control systems. Um, we apply the same techniques to them. We, we uh, essentially apply the same mental models uh, in them. Um, the fact that they're floating around or that they may have intermittent connectivity uh, are challenges, and, and we develop architectures to support that. But uh, in reality, it's just applying these same basic uh, capabilities in the maritime space. Yeah. I mean, we're, you're talking about, you know, how this is progressing. We will see this at some point, or certainly society will see this everywhere, everywhere we handle things. That's, that's the future. And so it's a question of which industry vertical can adopt it or is affording to adopt it first. And it'll trickle down into the smallest of operations, uh, right? That's correct. I mean, you, you've already got uh, test markets, for example. Um, if you're out in California, you're lucky enough to live in uh, uh, California. Um, Domino's Pizza has a robot that will roam neighborhoods, bake pizzas in the back of this little van thing, come to your house, and you walk up and it spits out your pizza. Um, That's straight out of sci-fi. That's out of a movie script. It is. It's fully autonomous. It drives around. It goes. It knows when it's out of dough. It goes back and gets dough. I, I personally have gotten packages now. I've been lucky enough to get a package delivered by drone uh, as a part of that, like kind of of uh, test market. Just fascinating. We're going to see more and more of these kinds of things, particularly as we optimize the supply chain. Um, the, the the impacts of COVID and a global pandemic and, and sort of the entropy that's come out of that uh, is just going to be fascinating. It's gonna make the next five to 10 years of our lives a lot like living in a sci-fi uh, environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. So uh, Ann Vroom was asking, are the, how modular are the grid parts? That is to ask if one gets stuck, is the whole grid at risk? 
So it can't, the controller can make safety adjustments. Like it can make a safety zone and say, okay, I've got a problem at this, at this cell and I'm going to take five cells around it, mark that off limits um, and, you know, optimize the rest, the flow around it. The problem is, is that you then can't sell whatever products are in that, that part of the grid. So pretty quickly you have to resolve that. Uh, outside of the track, the, the track is actually welded together. So it is not like if a piece gets bent, you can't just unplug it and plug it back in. You have to actually go out, cut it, weld it. It requires, you know, hardcore uh, physical alteration. But the other parts, for example, a belt or conveyor box, anything like that is pretty modular and can be oftentimes can be replaced or repaired within minutes. Yeah. Uh, here's an interesting question for you. Were there any, uh, Jordy uh, Deuce is asking this, were there any considerations given to EMF attacks or sonic attacks, like sonic weapons used by military police forces for crowd control that could be launched from outside the company's physical location, but would be able to penetrate the external building materials, specifically as a way of causing a fire or destruction of the product spoilage or or robotic system by competitors or state nations? We did not, uh, for this one, we did not look at external RF or sonic kinds of attacks. It just didn't rise to that. However, in one of the future deployments um, in this company, uh, it will need to be CMMC compliant at a very high level. And that building is being, the, the building around it is being built to handle that kind of, of attack infrastructure and threat posture. And that's about all I really probably should say about that. Yeah, well, so I mean, in my mind, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm thinking about my military days, you know, hardened facilities, that's probably part of the future as well, right? That there's more thought is going to go into how a facility is built, the physical facility, before anybody moves in, before there's any robots inside, how is it built to withstand certain kinds of, uh, of threats? Correct. And, um, you know, Derek, you and I have both worked in environments that are Tempest enabled um, to, you know, to defeat those kinds of attacks. And, and certainly some of that technology has bled over into the commercial world. But I'll tell you, again, e even those other environmental controls, right? Like we're starting to look now because of the pandemic, we had to increase ventilation inside the warehouse in order to get OSHA to clear humans to be in there working, right? just because we didn't want to be a COVID spreader. So it, as we build out some of that, we also looked at things like biological or other forms of uh, attack that could be performed. And when you get to these at size critical implementations, certainly that along with RF and sonic attacks will be a part of the defense of the infrastructure around the robotic stuff itself. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, there were some questions. There's comments about sort of the process and procedure and the maturity of it. I think people found that really interesting for you. Took it through it, but one person was saying, "And how big was the team that could do everything you just described?" <laughs> well, this is a this is a global manufacturer, so they they are fairly mature. They have um, they have a huge staff, but the team that worked on this in terms of the the sock work. Uh, the SOC is uh, roughly 25 people in the IT side and now roughly uh, about a half dozen in the OT side. Uh, and so we worked together to do uh, some of this. We had a few consultants as well, about a half dozen. So you're looking at a core group for this part of it. Now, this part of the security part of the, of the deployment, 
uh, at about 25 people. But, you know, certainly that doesn't include the welders and the people who were running cable and all of that. I mean, a deployment of this size, you know, probably takes in several hundred people uh, at various stages to do, you know, to build and, and roll out. Um, so here is um, here's another really interesting question, Brent. It's sort of lengthy, which he says, apologies for the length of the question. Um, and uh, so this is Subarayudu. Um, I probably have butchered your name. I'm so sorry, but I uh, send me the phonetics on that. I want to learn these, and especially if I'll see you again, I hope. While recognizing the importance of the warehousing system to the enterprise, I would assume the warehouse is not warehousing sensitive information for someone to steal. So is the primary purpose of the security coverage focused on availability and therefore missing execution? How does the business quantify this? Please contrast this to the potential of physical systems breakdown, which also impacts mission execution. Would it be a stretch to say that this is more prominent these days due to the spate of ransomware incidents? Are there any other business sensitives to making the security investments, sensitivities to making the security investments? So availability is clearly the highest standard here, um, more than confidentiality. Uh, it, although data integrity, of course, is always you know a, a secondary backbone. But yes, availability in this particular instance uh, was the, the highest priority and we built and optimized for that. However, like I said, in other deployments in the same organization where we have to meet CMMC requirements for manufacturing for the government and some of the parts where we're managing go into uh, sensitive projects, there, those systems are being built with confidentiality, with integrity and availability as co-equal parts of the Trinity. And we're making investments as such into uh, those capabilities. So in this particular first instance, availability was the highest class and is the thing that we are, we are most focused on. But uh, as we grow, we will certainly be optimizing for the rest of the security Trinity. Yeah. Uh, one procedural question, after a successful deployment, was there any red team pen testing on the IT or OT side? That is scheduled to be done in first quarter. Yep. Um, somebody asked if there are videos of robot crashes. Uh, you can search on YouTube for some of them. Um, we do not have any to share, but they they are out there. Um, there have been people who have, who have uh, done that. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming that's going to be something we're going to see more of, too, is all sorts of interesting automation going awry videos in, in, in social media over time here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and Bank actually sent me a pretty interesting one of a walking robot. Uh, I actually used the slide, the, the picture on the on the front of this sort of walking robot that was being trained to walk. And it just sort of kept falling over like every other couple of steps it would fall over. But you have to keep in mind, this is machine learning. So it has to fall a number of times to learn how to walk just like a human. And later, those robots move very quickly and they are quite dexterous. Yeah. So we're, we're in the stage of, uh, of wrap up. Um, is there anything you want to say sort of, uh, you know, Brent's uh, prediction of the future, you know, about this this area uh, and especially as it pertains to cybersecurity? You know, are we going to see, you know, a, a bunch more incidents? Well, I guess what I want to point out is that we spend, as security practitioners, we spend a lot of time listening to gloom and doom. Um, there's a lot of fail states. There's a lot of, uh, what if attackers do this? And what was critical to me about this case study was being able to share a success story, being able to show that 
just using common techniques and frameworks and applying them and doing the things that we learn got us out of whack-a-mole mode and got us into really strategic mode and we were able to successfully deploy the product. Um, so I, I just want to call that back. Everybody, it's great to learn about the newest threats. It's great to learn about what attackers are doing and certainly attackers drive the pace of our industry. But we have to remember that at the end of the day, we have to use these tools and the knowledge and the frameworks that we have successfully to build and empower the business. Because without that, uh, there's not going to be a need for us moving forward. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, we've, we'll share all the questions, Jesse. There's some more definitely in there. Um, you definitely stimulated a lot of thoughts for across a lot of a lot of different folks here today. Um, there's still, there's still stuff coming in, even though we, you know, the prize wheel is over. So that shows you guys are committed to asking good quality questions, no matter whether there's an incentive or not. So that's awesome. I hope everybody comes to our next sessions. Um, this one coming up next week, I think is going to be another one, just like today, very valuable, insightful one. Um, if you've been, uh, Rob Gary has spoken once before, uh, for us. Um, and so Rob's assembled a team, uh, at G and they're going to talk about real world responsible disclosure uh, of a, you know sort of a significant vulnerability. Um, it's it's uh, if you know you know that realm, it's not often that you can get uh, you know people to talk authentically about this sort of thing. And this is going to be a real sort of a, a day in the life. Here's what happened. Here's what we do. Um, here's here's the reaction. It involves multiple parties. So I, I definitely recommend if that area interests you uh, to come to that. And uh, and then we're excited about uh, Trend Micro, which has just joined us as our uh, brand new Mandiant. And Trend Micro just joined us this week as our brand new uh, brand new partners. So um, Brent, uh, thank you uh, a bunch again for uh, doing uh, today's session. Oh, I see you you uh, you left. <laughs> I know you're still there. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, thank you again. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and uh, people loved your session today, and I did too. And uh, I, I learned I learned some new things, so thank you. You are very, very welcome. And uh, please learn more about NLP. I think the more we learn about machine learning and some of these techniques, there there are huge amounts of uh, ways to apply them in information security and in uh, the work that we all do. There, there were questions and comments about NLP and AI, and you know, I didn't unpack all that. It's a whole nother, I mean, it's, it, we could do a whole session on that, right? And so um, I think you, you definitely got some people thinking and a few people that are, that are with you and saying these are some great, you know, some, some break, things are going to make some change, some real change, ground, groundbreaking, I guess. Um, so um, that, that resonated with a number of people and was new information for some. So uh, thank you again for, for everything you touched on. That was a, that was a really key ingredient, I think. Anytime. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for building CSE. And um, as a fellow, uh, I want to reach out to everyone. Feel free to reach out to me, ask questions. Um, really, that's what the fellowship program is here for. We want to share the wisdom of the fellows with the common of many. Uh, really get as much out of our brains uh, as you can. And as we get older, you got to do it soon because <laughs> some of us are aging out. So <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Brent. Hey, stay safe. Be well, everybody. We'll see you at uh, see you at a future CSA online session. <laughs>